Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Overcoming Chronic Illness podcast. I'm pleased to be joined today by Bridget Danner, um, a, an acupuncturist, and she has an extensive amount of experience treating, working with folks suffering from mold illness. So I'll uh, turn it over to her um, to give us um, a background on, if you could please, uh, Bridget, uh, give us a background on who you are and uh, just how you kind of got involved with working with folks with um, chronic illnesses. And, uh, and thank you for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for having me. I, I always love to talk, to be honest. <laughs> I love to talk health. Um, so yeah, I started my career as an acupuncturist in 2004. Um, I honestly got into natural medicine because like, I was an environmentalist. I just kind of believed in that lifestyle. Um, you know, didn't really have any major health issues yet that I knew about. Um, and then I started my career in Portland, Oregon. I moved there and did start having more symptoms um, around, gosh, at first I would say, you know, some increasing gut symptoms, anxiety, pain levels, um, insomnia, and all kind of around the same time I had moved into a new home, gotten married, had a baby, started a clinic. So stress was sort of always blamed for my symptoms. And I just diligently like chipped away at them, you know, while I was growing my career and my family and, um, you know, got super paleo, clean diet, you know, was just really trying to do all the things to feel better. Um, yeah, definitely didn't get anyone asking me about mold or um, anything for quite some time. Um, so uh yeah i would have like ups and downs probably more down in the winter with the with the weather and um you know getting a lot of colds and flus i would say some of my symptoms weren't the typical ones you think of for mold so we could chat more about that if you if you want later um and then really you know i had a great like upswing i was studying functional medicine and i did some testing i was feeling good followed by like pretty hard downturn in, in the fall uh, when everything got wet again, including my basement. Um, and I was just started working from home to do my online business. Uh, and then I got strep throat and I wasn't like bouncing back from that. And I was going to a naturopathic college, getting IV therapies. And, you know, I was just sort of like at the end of my rope. I was just like, you really can't tell me to live any healthier than I am uh, <laughs> mm -hmm. and that was the first time someone did ask me about my living environment and i got i think mold came up but they also tested me for some other like autoimmune things and they did run some other testing um so i feel like everyone with mold remembers that first conversation where someone suggested <laughs> you know what about your house tell me what's changed and uh we did have some like recent uh, leak in the basement, but we had always had a musty basement. And uh, I came home and told my husband at the time, and he was like, "Yeah, you know, I've been wondering. Like, let's check." So that was sort of the beginning of that adventure, and then that really shifted my career too. Like, I was on, on my own, kind of studying about functional medicine and learning about the body in a different way than the Chinese system. Uh, but now I really had to kind of go all in to to work on my own health. Um, so I learned a lot and, um, you know, kind of layered that on top of what I had already 
learned. I think by the time I got my diagnosis, you know, I've been practicing acupuncture, you know, 10, 12 years, something like that. So, um, yeah, I, I, you know, I eventually like shifted from doing like more like pain and, and women's health to doing detox and mold. I just felt like I have such a body of knowledge on this now. Uh, and once I was well enough, like I really wasn't well enough to do this, you know, kind of work for a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really wanted to do it and it's definitely needed as, as you know, so mm-hmm. yeah. I've been, I've been happy to, you know, be able to get better myself and contribute to this community. It's amazing that you got better and that's great. And I, I don't know about you and I'm not, we won't drop any names here, but, um, I don't think I know anyone who's, um, you know, passionate about treating folks with chronic illnesses that didn't have health issues themselves like it's it's i I don't know just off the top of your head again not naming names but do you you know anyone that's like steeped in this i have some friends who like their spouse was more the one or their child and that's that's something that got them into it um but yeah i mean i I think there's probably some naturopaths and such who just taken on right like they just kind of uh I don't know, were willing to research difficult cases. So mm-hmm. the difficult cases came to them more and more, right? Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's that's true. Yeah, sometimes it is like immediate family members too. That's that's true. But yeah, it's just, it seems like there's at least, rarely is there more than one degree of separation, I think, someone who's had a complex chronic illness in their life. But yeah, there's yeah. Exceptions. which I think can be really helpful. Like I, I have so much of a better understanding of, what it's like to go through it mm-hmm. um, and something that it definitely experienced sometimes when I was getting mold treatment was just feeling like my practitioners, um, you know, didn't always know what it was like to go through it and mm-hmm. all the layers of emotion and struggle. So, uh, yeah, in, in that sense, like I'm happy that I went through it. There's a silver lining, but yeah, yeah it builds a lot of compassion and empathy to say the least. Um, well, uh, circling back to something you you mentioned, how you had some atypical symptoms, which um, I'd be, all, if you don't mind sharing uh, what some of those atypical mold symptoms were, I'd be really curious. Yeah, I mean, now that I specialize in mold, I, I feel like the top two are probably brain fog, fatigue. Um, mm-hmm. I wouldn't say those were my first two things at all. I would say my first few things were like frequent colds and flus, mm-hmm. irregular periods, and chronic pain. Mm-hmm. Um, so nobody really, you know, and probably the digestive stuff too was in there. I, I feel like those things still could be quite overlooked for mold, um, all those things. Yeah, I mean, I think differential diagnosis-wise, it wouldn't be the first place that most of us would think to like, oh, you've got, you know, irregular menstrual parameters, like it must be mold toxicity, like it would be, that tends to be pretty far down the the uh, the DDX tree, I think, for, for most clinicians. And I mean, and quite frankly, I mean, with most patients in my experience, um, it's, you know, relatively speaking rare that it's mold illness that's driving that, um, but sometimes it is, obviously, so it's good to know about that. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes it is. (laughs) So, yeah, just good to consider because you can end Mm. up, you know, spending a lot of time and maybe some of the interventions will help, right? Some like herbs helped my immune system, you know, probably some herbs help my periods. But like I always say to people, like if you're just not really getting to where you want to be, 
like look at environmental toxins. Absolutely. Yeah. It's in my opinion, it's like on the DDX list until proven otherwise. Um, but yeah. Um, now it, I was going to talk to you about this a little bit later on, but I'll, I'll just bring it up now as it's kind of relevant to what we just talked about. So um, save all the folks that you've worked with over time um, who are suffering from mold illness. Um, how often would you say that? Um, so sorry, let me paint the picture a little bit more. So um, folks who are you know suffering from mold illness, they have, you know, say dysmenorrhea or other, you know, notable uh, menstrual cycle related issues going on. Um, how often do you find that when you bring in hormone balancing support or, you know, estrogen detox support or whatever it is they specifically need from their Dutch test results or whatever, whatever happens to be, how often do you find that hormonal support is like a really pivotal, pivotal part of their protocol? Like it's like, oh, I went on those herbs or I've started that protocol and man, like I just feel notably better. Or is it really more of a background, like supportive thing that doesn't necessarily contribute a lot to their overall mold recovery? Mm. So you're saying a patient who does have mold and has some hormone issues, mm -hmm. how much help will the hormone support deliver yeah. or less? Yeah, more or less. I think it really depends. And, and it's I think it's a question like, uh, I think you've been interviewed by Scott with Better Health Guy and mm -hmm. we were talking about something and I thought, huh, you know, I because of my natural background, I did not do any, you know, uh, exogenous hormones until pretty recently in my story. And I really wonder if I had gotten a little uh, more uh, support around the getting those doses right and trying things safely, like if that could have really made a difference to um, just kind of get my recovery going. I'm like, this is a, just an open question. You're welcome to kind of weigh in as well because uh, it wasn't something I did early on. I probably did do some herbs and stuff. In my mm -hmm. case, that wasn't enough. The mm -hmm. herbs and stuff really weren't enough. Some, a little bit, like some helping, once, especially once I was getting really better. But I wouldn't say, you know, my spotting between periods got better until a long time into the process, like once I was out of mold and, and all that. So I, yeah, I, I do kind of ponder now, like if, you know, and I'm not a practitioner who can prescribe hormones. So it's probably also why I'm not as versed in this, but I do kind of wonder if we give hormones sooner, what would we see as far as results? Um, yeah, do you, how about you? Have you kind of tried different hormones at different points with folks going through mold? Um, more so like the non, um, you know, non hormone replacement therapy type treatments, like more like hormone regulating herbs, but I, I've definitely had many patients with mold issues or other chronic health issues where they have been on bioidentical hormones or whatnot. Um, and sometimes they're really, really helpful for sure. Um, I've had a handful of patients over the course of time where the hormone regulating support, like, so herbs like, you know, chase tree and wild yam and, um, uh, Angelica sinensis, like those are kind of my three favorite hormone regulating herbs that I use pretty often. Um, I've had a handful of patients where like that just made a huge difference. Like they felt so much better from awesome. that. Like their mood improved, energy improved, sleep improved, like just everything was so much better in including improving their menstrual parameters. Um, 
but I find a majority of patients, you know, whether they're responding well to herbs or they're, you know, benefiting from hormone replacement therapy, I find that it's not really, it doesn't really lead to like huge clinical improvements overall. It can really improve or reduce their, um, uh, menstrual related symptoms, but in terms of like just generally improving energy, reducing pain, helping brain fog, I find it's just not super, super often that that intervention makes a big difference in that way. So I was kind of wondering if you've had a similar experience, um, like with other, like with clients that you've worked with, or if, if you found it to be more impactful than I have. Yeah, I think it's a bit, a little bit of a mixed bag, but yeah, I think ultimately, obviously it's not going to be enough if the client's still in mold, right? Like, of course, of course, could yeah. probably like regulate the HPA access a little bit for a while, but mm -hmm. I don't, you know, ultimately mold's gonna override because it overrides everything. So, of course, uh, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I'll, I mean, you know that, and I'm sure your listeners do too. But just to just emphasize, yeah, like anything we talk about today will not work until you're out of mold, like just it just won't work you know it'll just be a band-aid so i always have to kind of remind people of that as well yeah and thanks for clarifying that point and uh yeah not insinuating like just hormone support but more like you're on your mold protocol you know you're using your spray in your sinuses yeah. you're taking your binder and like okay let's bring in some hormonal support and and what kind of what in what way does that kind of move the needle um so yeah, uh, but yeah, thanks for clarifying. Yeah, that. yeah. For me, I'll just end with that. Like for me, I had done herbal stuff and like some libido herbs were helping me. And then I did get on um, more like creams and thyroid replacement. And wow, it was like big for me. Um, so yeah. Um, yeah. So I just kind of wonder what it would have been like earlier. Mm -hmm. But I'm definitely, yeah, really open-minded to, uh, I mean, I think hormone support is so important mm -hmm. and sometimes you get lost in the conversation in a mold and chronic illness. I, I don't totally know why. Uh, maybe because it's like reproduction is sort of feels secondary to surviving what we're going through. For sure. uh, but it can really make you feel better, right? Have more motivation, be less emotionally unstable, you know, can help for weight, help for sex drive. So uh, all that support can be, you know, just really nice to making you feel like yourself again. Yeah, absolutely. Um... And uh, just another thing you mentioned earlier, which uh, kind of sparked this other question. So um, you were saying, uh, I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but where uh, it was, it took a while before you found a clinician who actually asked you about, you know, mold exposure and in your you know environment and whatnot. And I'm just wondering, because I, I know one of the things that I run into in practice, and I've um, refined this over time, so I'm a lot better at it now, but I know in my earlier days of, you know, screening patients for mold illness, um, sometimes it's like pulling teeth, trying to get them to, um, you know, acknowledge or, or think about the possibility that they might have mold exposure. There seems to be sort of maybe this cultural aversion or something where people don't want to admit or acknowledge that maybe they they did have a mold exposure. So I, I kind of have my way of teasing that information out of folks in a, you know, kind, compassionate way. Um, but I'm wondering if there are certain questions that, um, you know, you ask clients um, or ways that you kind of tease that information out to see if they might have mold. Because I think most folks think like, oh, unless I see like my walls are covered in black, I don't have a mold issue. So it's just too easily dismissed. Are there um, certain questions that you ask uh, clients to tease that information out? Yeah, I can answer that. But I will say I'm in a pretty unusual or different situation, which is since I talk so much about mold, mm -hmm. people usually come to us okay. 
either having had testing, you know, they're usually already somewhere in the process. Right, right. Um, they're, you know, so they're pretty bought into the idea by the time That's they come fair. to it. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I mean, I put in my book some of that stuff because I, I do think people like, you know, any kind of um, like salty looking water stain can be mold. Any kind of mildew in the shower can be mold. Like there's just a lot more than people think. And like just how well, you know, have you ever measured the humidity in your home? Um, do you clean your gutters? You know, do you clean your HVAC? Like there's sort of a checklist you can think about with your current home, you know, looking under sinks and looking under, looking in basements, you know, kind of using your five senses um, to get, you know, occasionally it really is fully hidden in the wall and you're getting no information. Um, and then you can think about other places too, you know, workplace, um, places you lived as a child, colleges and dorm, dorms, you know, dorms and college living are big problem. Um, military housing, you know, we're hearing more about, um, so sometimes you do have to go back in time. Um, and then, you know, I, it's always like chicken and egg. Do we test like the home? Do we test the body? Uh, if people just maybe like coming to you, they're just chronically ill, you can test the body and see, you know, see what's coming out. It's not perfect tests, but, you know, pretty good. And then from there, you can maybe think about more of the, the environment. Um, Unless you already are really heavily, or, or you know, thinking about the environment, then you may want to start there. So, I think it can go either way as far as as where to start. But like just a visual inspection of your home and thinking about your workplace, and then you know, checklisting your symptoms. Uh, There's so many, right? That could be related to mold, uh, and then just you know, I think every case is unique. Like, what's your budget? Do you rent or own? Like, you know, and then you think about what testing to do next. Hmm. Great. Yeah, those are all really good points. Um, <clears throat> in terms of folks that you've worked with historically, um, just out of curiosity, which what percentage would you say, like just ballpark, like what percentage would you say are um, sick with they're having mold illness because of an environment that they're, they're in currently versus an environment that maybe they were in like, you know, years ago. Um, so, you know, like I'm, I'm in my home right now, there was a, a flood in my basement, you know, a few years ago, I started getting sick, you know, a couple of years after that, um, you know, some more of a current situation versus, you know, like, oh yeah, like I lived in that really moldy dormitory for four years. And that's when I started developing all my chronic fatigue. And here I am 10 years later, and I don't live in that moldy dormitory anymore, but I still have the residual symptoms of mold illness. I'm just wondering in your experience, kind of how often do you see either one of those scenarios? Well, we definitely see more current, currently still in the place, you know, maybe just moved out. You know, the moving part is not really one that anyone likes, so they're often still in the place. Um, but I have seen and tested some people who, um, you know, have had their home tested but can think of an older exposure. You know, frankly, when I first started to get those, I was surprised because I was like, I can't believe it's still... Mm -hmm. there for so mm -hmm. long um 
but you can just be kind of recycling it for for a long time and if somebody's been chronically ill for 10 years just like we see with every mold case like it's probably not just mold right it's probably several things going on probably. Uh, and mold is just kind of helped weaken the immune system and such um disrupted the gut or the brain so you know, as much as I very much think mold is a big, big contributor to most chronic illness, mm -hmm. it's not the only player. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, I, I, for better or worse, people often have to just like open up that Pandora's box of everything they've accumulated over the 50 years of their lifetime or, or what have you. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> and just kind of another question that sprang to mind while you were talking there. Um, just where you do have, um, we'll say more of like a, a, a niche or, or, or a biased population, if you will, of folks who are you know dealing with mold or are more likely than not to be dealing with mold um, or mold illness. Um, I'm wondering how um, have you seen many cases where um, patients are having chronic digestive issues? Um, so, you know, gas bloating, abdominal pain, constipation and or diarrhea, whatever, like the typical kind of spectrum of symptoms. And like, they've been really thoroughly treated like every which way, like they've been, you know, screened for and or treated for like H. pylori, H. pylori SIBO, large intestine bacterial overgrowth, yeast overgrowth, parasites. They've been on digestive enzymes, stomach acid, ox bile, cholagogs. Like they've just done everything under the sun um, to help their gut health. And yet they still have digestive issues. And then once they're treated for mold, that finally resolves um, their digestive issues. I'm wondering if you've seen cases like that. And if so, is it, have you seen many of those cases? Uh, yeah, it's, it's really common. Um, I, I don't know if you tuned in. We had a mold summit last year that we're going to do again this year. Mm -hmm. One thing that kind of occurred to me as we did the interviews was that multiple food sensitivities was really the a uh, common uh, symptom for mold. Mm -hmm. And when you're having multiple people sensitivities, you're probably also having, you know, IBS and different symptoms. So um, there's just definitely a lot of constipation in this community too. And I mean, it's similar to my own journey. Like I was doing all this good work, uh, all the testing and it was getting somewhat better, but it's like, I was kind of the same as a lot of my clients. Like, I was meticulous <laughs> with my diet, right? And like, you know, so it kind of kept some things at bay, um, but I certainly couldn't be straying off my diet. So yeah, I mean, it's just such a huge disruptor to the gut, creates leaky gut, creates inflammation, makes um, infections more probable. Um, so yeah, I think it's a big thing, although I will side note it, that I was just talking to a friend of mine who, um, kind of went through that when she had implants. Uh, so that's also could be a thing like if you're not seeing, you know, digestive symptoms or other symptoms getting better. So, you know, just, yeah, again, like another type of toxin that um, could be the, just disrupting the body. Mm -hmm. And in my understanding, having seen some really gross pictures at some conferences, like sometimes implants can be mold contaminated as well, um, to my understanding. Like, have you have you seen any of those uh, pictures before? Yeah, like, yeah, maybe, I've uh... seen it, but like I haven't yet heard. It seems like they haven't, like they don't often do like the actual testing to right. see what's on the implants afterwards, but... There's got to be something out there. I think they just, most people don't bother. I think a friend of mine had them out and they, 
this is like another eight hundred dollars to have sure. it tested. So I yeah, I have heard of that for sure. Right. And I, I just think, yeah, all the other stress on the body, they, they're leaking, they're blocking the lymph, yeah. um, that kind Wild. of thing. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's really unfortunate. Um so uh, let me see here. So uh, another question I had for you. Um, so I, I noticed one of your on one of your Instagram posts, you'd uh, mentioned about um, a hydrogen tablets, and I'm just wondering if that's something that you've often recommended for folks, and if so, what kind of um, clinical impact you've seen those have over the course of time? Yeah, you know they're not in our shop, so I've sort of just recommended them more like offhand and some blogs and stuff, but I was introduced to those from Datis Karazian's work, mm -hmm. um, talking about especially exercise intolerance, which mm -hmm. is certainly some of our moldies people can are experiencing pretty mm -hmm. severe. So it just is a boost of antioxidants um, to put that in its Quicksilver brand, brand, I think it's called mm -hmm. H2 Elite or something like that. Okay. Um, so you could do those potentially like before and after your workout. You don't want to like push way beyond your limit, but like if you're wanting to, you know, you're in the road to recovery, you're trying to exercise more, but you still don't, you know, get sore, you don't recover well, um, it could be a nice boost. Um, I think all the, you know, I'm, I'm super interested in antioxidants right now in general. I think they can play a lot bigger role in detox than people realize. Um, you know, we, we become just usually severely uh, antioxidant deficient from being in mold or, you know, just being chronically ill. Um, so yeah, that's just like one little cool hack of, uh, in the family of antioxidants. Yeah. I, I don't think it's very well known either. Like it's not often I hear people talking about hydrogen and, uh, just, yeah, I just don't think people know about it. Um, yeah, I, I still would like to know more. I'd like to like mm -hmm. do a blog and I think there's a machine you can do to make hydrogen water too. Um, yeah. how about you? Yeah. Do you, you use, utilize it? Uh, I've, I've played with it a bit. It's actually a little bit challenging for us to get hydrogen, um, products in Canada. Um, oh, there's, okay. uh, there, I think research nutritionals, um, I think we can get them from them pretty easily now, but for a while, like there were no companies that would ship the products here. I, I got like a batch shipped to me once and the company after was like, so that was an accident. We weren't supposed to do that. So apparently <laughs> I had illegal hydrogen, um, oh tablets, but yeah, it was just weird. But anyway, so I, I, I kind of went on a little kick and, and I have, um, I have one patient in particular, she just loves them like she just did so so well with hydrogen um but i uh, didn't really have a chance to try it with that many patients i took some myself just to see if it would improve my sports performance but i wasn't having any having any chronic health issues anymore at that point so it didn't really help me but uh i, I think it's fascinating and I've, I've looked into like buying the hydrogen generating machines and things like that but i just haven't taken the plunge it's a it's a bit of a, a bit of a rabbit hole to get into there's yeah right there yeah yeah same i'd like to and i think the coach who works for us is, had also recommended it to me to, to try out um but sometimes like you know you're trying so much stuff you're like what does this even be doing um but yeah if i think if you're feeling like just you know fatigue coming back and definitely exercise fatigue you can be t using it you know i think potentially like four times a day um as just kind of like a a boost a pretty quick a quick boost. everyone like i like a quick boost when i'm chronically <laughs> so you know it's, it's nice to have something that feels like it you know it's making a difference of course yeah it's nice when there's that obvious tangible change 
um yeah and just for folks listening like there's um to my understanding like there's a lot of uh research evidence on hydrogen um now some of it's i think actually quite a bit of it if memory serves is on like inhaling um hydrogen gas um if if, if i'm recalling correctly um but uh, there is some on oral hydrogen supplementation too um so just just fyi uh, for folks that are listening um and uh, you mentioned how you're quite um, on a bit of an antioxidant kick these days. So I'm just wondering what kind of, uh, outside of hydrogen tablets, um, what uh, other types of supplemental oxidant, um, antioxidants or, or foods or like what, what are, what's on your top five list, let's say right now for antioxidants, if you don't mind sharing. Yeah. You know, I, I found the work of, I think his name is Lester Packer. Um, and I feel like his work has not been appreciated enough. So he wrote this book in 99, um, about the antioxidant network and how the certain five antioxidants work together. So it's glutathione, ALA, vitamin C, vitamin E. I feel like I'm missing one now. <laughs> I probably am because that's only four. That's um, cool. <laughs> you named the well, ones I was we'll thinking see. of. So we'll I'm see if it sure. comes to me. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> and then there's a lot of herbal, like, um, not vitamin antioxidants, but antioxidants, like, in other ways, like um, grapeseed extract and curcumin. Uh, I mean, there's a gazillion, right? There's a gazillion food-based antioxidants. Mm-hmm. Um so yeah, I've just been like learning about more about those and experimenting with those more. And you know, I see in uh, in the mold community like some of these being talked about, but less so others. Um, I mean, certainly you don't hear about like vitamin E in there. Um, you know, maybe because it's gotten more known for like heart health, um, but. You know, I'll have to come back on when I have this all dialed in a little tighter. But um, you know, certain they can certain ones recycle each other, mm-hmm. um, and it's pretty cool. So, like getting those five while you're going through detox, I think, is a great idea. Um, and then just like having more herbal teas and um, or doing something very intensive like liposomal curcumin. Like, there's a lot of options. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, and just having emphasis on colorful foods, variety of foods, like something we know, but I think like just knowing the really like the value of all those little flavonoids and antioxidants, um, it's a big deal. It's a, it's a really big support for your body uh, because I think we just think like, oh, you get exposed to toxins and then there's inflammation. Well, what's like the cause of that inflammation? It's like usually like the oxidative stress on the body um, of these toxins. How can I explain this? <laughs> but I don't think we really hear about like mold putting the body like in an oxidative stress state. At least I don't. I hear about it that much. It doesn't seem like so. Um, but that is and it's, it is what's happening and it is what's happening with a lot of chronic like diseases too, like heart disease and dementia and stuff. So, um, yeah, I definitely, you know, want to be bringing bringing antioxidants into the conversation more. Yeah, they're super important and, and just kind of dovetailing on what you said. I think there has what in my experience anyways, there's been more conversation, I think, in the last maybe year or two that I've heard 
um, just around the importance of maintaining the health and integrity of our cell membranes and including our mitochondrial membranes, which are very similar yeah. to our cell membranes and how, you know, if they're, if those lipids are getting oxidized, that causes a lot of membrane dysfunction. And so I think there is like a little bit more of a, you know, uh, something out there in the ether, a little bit more around like preserving those, the cell membrane integrity through, um, antioxidants more so. And, and to my understanding, um, vitamin E is the most important or most prevalent fat soluble antioxidant. Um, so where glutathione gets so much, you know, hype because it is amazing and, and our bodies are more water than non-water. Um, so if it's the best water soluble antioxidant, vitamin E is the most important, um, fat soluble antioxidant, then, um, you know, there, there, I think there's quite a nice marriage between the two of those, um, so to speak. Um, also just a quick, quick little plug. And I just want to mention this quickly because it's just, I guess I'll just call it a pet peeve of mine, but, um, uh, you know, you go look at most, uh, supplements that have vitamin E in them and it's just alpha tocopherol. Um, and just a little PSA I'm here for folks listening. Um, you know, vitamin E is actually a family of eight different molecules. There's four tocopherols, four tocotrienols. So, uh, just when considering a vitamin E supplement, um, to my understanding, it's quite important to make sure that we're getting, you know, not just alpha tocopherol, we want all the members of the family, hopefully in good uh, representation. So, um, yeah. So, you know, your vitamin E. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, yeah, like we are always hearing about like glutathione for mold, but it's like, mm -hmm. we're never talking about vitamin E or the types mm -hmm. of vitamin E and you're absolutely right about the cell membrane. Um, so yeah, there's a good one from designs for health. Um, there's probably other good brands too. Um, it's good for the skin too. I mean, when you start reading about these antioxidants, like they're so protective of so many things. Um, so they're just awesome <laughs> to like get to know in my opinion. Yeah, they are, they are fantastic. Um, and actually, just, uh, I always forget to mention this earlier in the podcast, but uh, just to clarify for everyone listening, um, we're not giving any medical advice today. Um, this is all for informational purposes only. If you need medical advice, please talk to your healthcare provider about that. So we're just providing information. Um, on the antioxidant uh, conversation train here, just um, I know that you're, uh, well, we were chatting a little bit uh beforehand, I think, before uh, we went live here with the recording um, and also from some of your Instagram posts. Um, I, I know you're uh, an advocate of the Dutch test, uh, which I we use that in our clinic as well. Uh, one of the markers on the Dutch test, if you do the Dutch complete anyways, um, as you know, is the that 8-OH-DG uh, marker, that 8-hydroxy-deoxyguanosine, uh, I believe is the full name for that one, um, as a marker of um, oxidative um, stress on our DNA. And yeah. I'm just wondering what your experience has been with 8-OH-DG um, in terms of, you know, whether you feel um, in your experience that it's been a sensitive indicator or if that level is high, it means there's more DNA damage, suggesting there's more, or there's not enough antioxidant activity. Do you find that picks up quite accurately how often folks need um, antioxidant support or what's your, what's your opinion Ooh, on that test? That's market? a great question. Okay. Before I answer, the fifth one is CoQ10. <laughs> it was um, driving me crazy that I forgot that. Um, yeah, I haven't seen that marker that high on that many people. But like, come to think of it, one of the clients, I did see it high end, she had had cancer. Um, she was seeing us more for just like hormones and recovery. Mm -hmm. And then later tested high for mold. Hmm. So, um, you know, we, we used to do more women's health before more detox. So it does make me wonder it, but like my own Dutch, when I was going through things that that marker wasn't high, but I was always really supporting 
you know, my body too. So yeah, I mean, for me, when I've talked to Dutch, unless that marker is like out of range, they've been kind of like, don't worry about it, which I wonder if there's a way to measure that more sensitively. Like if you're halfway there, <laughs> is that a bad sign? What do you think? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I've been um, really, I, I really take it with a grain of salt. Like if it's high, I'm like, oh my gosh, like you, you really yeah. need antioxidants. Um, but um, I've, yeah, I find that it's very rare that it's out of range. And uh, there's actually another lab marker that I kind of, I don't know, stumbled upon in a sense. Um, and I just, as we run this um, panel through the lab doctor's data, I'm sure other labs probably do it too. We just like doctor's data because they're well-priced. I have no affiliation with them whatsoever, uh, but we just like them. And um, they have this uh, marker um, called oxidized LDL. Um, LDL for folks listening is kind of what's oftentimes referred to as bad cholesterol, which is a misnomer because it's not actually bad. We need it to live, but if you have too much of it, it may be associated with increased cardiovascular event risk. Um, but basically they do this um, sort of subtyping, if you will, where it gives you your total LDL and then it tells you how much of that is oxidized. Um, and the oxidized LDL, again, for folks listening, is the form of this quote unquote bad cholesterol that can get can, um, incorporated into plaques in the arteries. And that's why it can be potentially problematic. Um, so what I've found, um, interestingly enough, is that when folks are, when they have an elevated oxidized LDL, then that seems to be a pretty good in indicator of when they need more antioxidant support. So then we put them on, you know, usually glutathione, like a liposomal glutathione as well as a, a mixed tocopherol, mixed tocotrienol, vitamin E, um, along with whatever else makes sense with supporting their case. Um, and like, just, you can pretty much set your watch to, you know, seeing how that oxidized oh, LDL cool. comes down really nicely. So it's been a really, really cool surrogate marker and I, or a really cool marker. And I think that um, even though it's like a little bit of an indirect thing, cause it's like, well, how much of this oxidized thing is kicking around in the bloodstream? Um, I think it's much more useful than the 8-OH-DG um, personally. So that's my. Yeah, I'll, I'm going to have to look that up because there aren't a lot of great tests for antioxidant status no, that I've no, heard not of. Not really. No. Yeah, it, they're no. few and far between. And it's like such an important thing. It would be so nice to have that information. But um, that's yeah. And unfortunately, yeah. it's only it's only through a blood test. So it's not like you can just do a, a urine oxidized LDL. From home. But, um, yeah, yeah. But yeah. Yeah. And you know, there's some markers on the organic acid and this and that, but I don't find yeah. those to be a hundred percent through and through no. No. either. Um, and then I know there's like levels in the blood versus in the cell and like, yeah. I mean, I think you can pretty much say anybody going through chronic illness of any kind <laughs> needs more antioxidants. Um, Quite possibly. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and go ahead. Oh, uh, thank you. I was just going to say the proof is in the pudding, right? Like, you know, how do people feel when they go on the antioxidants? And and granted, sometimes they're just kind of like a supportive thing in the background. But I've had so many patients where, you know, we start them on liposomal glutathione, like, you know, they're on their, they're on their binder, they're on their, you know, methylation support, they're doing their nasal spray, they're do doing whatever for their protocol. And then we add in liposomal glutathione as just a single new variable, because of course, many folks with mold issues or other chronic issues, they're very sensitive, we have to phase in one thing at a time, very methodical. And, you know, once we get in certain antioxidants, whether it's glutathione or vitamin E in some cases, or, or maybe CoQ10 or others, um, then like for some folks, it makes an obvious difference. Um, you know, they feel like their brain is clearer, their pain levels are less, their, you know, detoxification function seems better. So I, I think the proof in the pudding is, well, do you actually see clinical results when you add these things in? And we see it all the time. 
Yeah, yeah. And the way we all take in antioxidants and especially like polyphenols from foods, you know, if our gut is damaged and our cells are inflamed, like it can be different for everybody, right? How one feels versus the other. Um, but yeah, there's luckily a lot to choose from. And, you know, I just, again, was studying a newer course with Jatis Karazian on um, aging, healthy aging. And, uh, you know, he's just like, take as many oxidants as you can. It's so protective for your DNA. And, um, you know, there's just so, you know, there's of course a million like lifestyle habits too, good for aging, which a lot of them are just like socializing and, you know, <laughs> stuff, stuff that's really simple. Um, but antioxidants are, are really great for that. So it's more of an interest of mine now in this point of my story is like, you know, how do I age really well and feel good, which is kind of what everyone wants. Uh, and a lot of antioxidants are pretty affordable, you know, make them part of your lifestyle. Um, so yeah, I'm a fan. <laughs> That's good. It's it's interesting to me how, um, in my experience, there's quite um, there's quite a lot of overlap in terms of you know what's good for kind of optimizing your health when you're or like when you're healthy and you want to optimize your health and maintain your health. There's so much overlap with those practices as what you need to do when you're chronically ill as well. Um, so like ironically. Yeah. You know, even though I mostly work with folks with complex chronic illness, uh, when folks are 100% or some occasionally somebody comes in like I'm healthy and I want to stay that way, it's like oh, thank goodness, an easy case for once. Um, but like the things we talk about are really similar, um, and so it's it, there. There's just a lot of overlap there, which I find to be yeah, that's a fringe benefit for sure. And you know, mm -hmm. I just still do a lot of my same detox practices that I mm -hmm. did. You know, I mm -hmm. sauna, I coffee enema, I Epsom mm -hmm. salt bath take my antioxidants um and you know not only have i recovered for the most part and mm -hmm. anyway um you know i just do feel like i'm actually you know doing better than most people in my age group just because i i've learned to take care of myself so well so right. i think and i've heard that from clients too right i was already in the health background when this happened to me but i've heard that from clients too they're just like I would never go back to, you know, eating fast food and like feeling like crap again. Like I feel great, you know, I'm active and it's, it's awesome. Yeah. It's, it's almost like a weird little like parting gift of like, so you had this like crazy, pretty awful experience with your health, but at least the one silver lining is like, okay. And like, now you have all these, this knowledge and these tools and you're hopefully going to avoid, um, you know, maybe some of the chronic health maladies that a person may have been more susceptible to. It's like, hey, with these health practices, probably less likely to have cardiovascular disease or maybe certain types of cancer or diabetes or this or that. So, you know, there's there can be um, that positive kind of feed forward, at least after going through so much. For sure. Yeah. Um, I know we're uh, kind of starting to round the bend here on our time that we have together, but uh, just a couple of quick things I wanted to sneak in here. Um, so I'm a really big uh, proponent of talking about excuse me, mitochondrial health and function. Um, I've been known to say that they're just really everything. Uh, there's really no facet of health that doesn't is not involved uh, with them or that, that they don't have their uh, tendrils in. And I'm just wondering if there um, are specific uh, supplements or things that you think about when it relates to either mitochondrial uh, support treatments or tests around mitochondrial function or how mold might impact mitochondria. Any any words um, mm. you could share around the mitochondria? Yeah, yeah. I, I'm a big fan of mitochondria too, uh, for mm -hmm. sure. One of my practitioners early on um, 
Suzanne Bennett has written a book on mitochondria and she, you know, I just a small book. I read it and um, did some of the practices in there. Um, so yeah, I'm a big believer in supporting them. And again, again, it's a lot of the overlap. Like they're sensitive to environmental toxins. Um, they love <laughs> like OQ10, they love antioxidants. Um, exercise is really good for them. Um, sauna is good. Um, you know, kind of like all the detox practices I think are good. I haven't gotten as much into NAD, but I actually just, you know, been ordering some for myself to experiment with more. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a, there's a different nutrients needed in that process of um, creating energy that can support mitochondria. So there are different like nutrients for mitochondria. Uh, I would say in my own recovery, exercise part was pretty, a pretty big deal. Actually, mm -hmm. it helped me a lot. Uh, and I was like floored at first, like I would go to the gym and there was a sauna that you could turn on with a knob. And I'd be like, oh, I'm going to work out. And then I just lay on a bench. Like I was just, I had no energy to work out. And she really stressed the importance of it. And I was surprised like how quickly it did come back when I did, you know, step by step. Uh, it really brought my energy back. So, you know, That's a lot cool. of us are moving, losing muscle mass and like, you know, becoming pretty um, lethargic and, and all that. So to whatever extent you can, I think movement is really important. Mm -hmm. um, which is a wonderful segue to the next thing I was going to ask you about, which is lymphatic system support. Because um, generally speaking, if we don't move our body parts, our lymph doesn't really move a whole heck of a lot. Um, and so I'm just wondering, as I, I know you have, um, I've seen a few of your posts about lymphatic system support um, on social media as well. Um, any uh could you speak a little bit to ways in which you recommend lymphatic support for folks? Yeah, I mean, I love dry brushing at home. Uh, I love sauna. Um, you know, just recently I, f I found a clinic that has some more advanced lymph techniques. They use a machine called LymphStar. Have mm. you heard of it? No. It has is, like this wand with these negative ions in it, and then mm. it has a laser. So he told me that dry brushing is more superficial lymph vessels, and this is deeper. Hmm. Um, so I've just had two treatments, and they were really impressive for wow. me. So, okay. um, you know, I usually am a pretty big fan of like telling you to do stuff at home. You know, you can bounce on a rebounder. You can go to yoga. You can take walks. Um, mm -hmm. Lots of ways to support lymph movement. Um, but I am excited because I think I've been doing those things for years, right? And now I'm trying this new thing. And I was like, whoa, <laughs> it is kind of next level to do some potentially like professional treatments that get a little yeah. deeper. That's great. Yeah, I, one of my favorite uh, anecdotes to tell patients, because uh, I, I refer some folks for uh, manual lymphatic drainage, um, especially if they have a lot of edema and things like that. And like I've had, <clears throat> I had one patient where every time she would get her MLD treatment, um, she would urinate out like three liters of water afterwards. And like, she'd go oh from like gosh. tree trunk limbs to like normal limbs. Like, so it just kind of speaks to the fact that the right type of, um, or the, the, a deeper type of lymphatic support, which, you know, manual lymphatic drainage would be in that category can, you know, just have these profound benefits. Like you're never going to see that with dry skin brushing. Um, you know, it's great. I love it. Right. Uh, I recommend it right. all the time, but like, so a deeper sort of acting treatment could, yeah, obviously have a, a significant, um, a further significant impact. So that's, that device sounds really cool. 
Yeah, and I did have some lymphatic massage um, or lymphatic technique uh, when I was sick, and I was surprised that I had like a Hertz reaction. And mm. I was like, oh. So I, you know, the second or third one, I took binders. But yeah, the first one moved a lot, definitely more than a dry brush is, yeah. is going to. So, you know, I, I think people get to pick their own path, and everybody's usually on a budget by the time mm. they're going through everything with mold. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think especially when I was really sick, my lymph was just so congested, like, you know, constantly swollen glands, just like almost like mm. feeling my groin crease just heavy. And I would, you know, do squats and dry brush it. I uh, really think getting right in your groin crease with a dry brush is a really good idea. And then also up here, I learned that from like the limb star, just like above and below the breast, really important too. So um yeah i learned some learned some new things <laughs> from from that treatment yeah lymph is very cool it's uh yeah definitely very special topic um excuse me for just one second bridget i, I apologize i just need to pause this i'm i'm at work still and they're knocking on my door insistently okay. so i um, excuse okay, me for just one second sorry sorry folks just gonna pause the recording for one sec all right. Sorry about the lapse there, folks. And uh, thanks for your patience there, Bridget. Um, uh, so another question I have for you just before we wrap up, um, just wondering what uh, types of <clears throat> excuse me, interventions you found to be the most useful um, to help mitigate symptoms of uh, mast cell activation. Um, you know, of course, it's so important to actually treat the root cause and, you know, get the mycotoxins out and, and the whole kit and caboodle there. But in terms of, say, mast cell stabilizers or histamine metabolizers or histamine receptor blockers, just wondering what kinds of things you found to be the most helpful for folks over time. Yeah, I'm probably not the biggest expert on that. Like, I'm, I kind of learned it a little late. Um, I'm trying to think of some things I've tried. Um, well, I've definitely like tried Allegra, <laughs> like, you know, sometimes those over the counter ones yeah, are helpful. helpful. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, high dose vitamin C, some people need to avoid histamine foods, mm -hmm. um, for a while. Like, unfortunately, sometimes even avocado is getting people, but definitely mm -hmm. like alcohol and cheeses and that kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. It's interesting, you know, I've tried some different herbal um, histamine blockers. Maybe my dose wasn't high enough. I haven't really felt like the relief yet from it. Um, and I, since I moved away, since I moved from Oregon to Arizona, I've developed more asthma from, you know, probably my mold history plus, you know, the, the pollution stuff here. and. Um, so it's been like one of the things that really hung on for me and interestingly, and we'll see, cause we're kind of off season, but when I started to get, um, those lymph treatments, I, I feel like that shifted something for me. Um, so what we kind of discussed, at least for me, that maybe I was still in some of that mast cell, like, you know, overreacting to the air and stuff, um, was just kind of still cellular debris or, you know, debris in me from all the infections and everything I've gone through. So we'll see. We'll see in the spring, <laughs> you know, Indeed. if I'm less sensitive enough. But it's just been, you know, interesting. It's like you said, it's like, you know, another friend, Alyssa Scott from Better Health was like, well, if you still have mast cell, you still have a trigger, you know, work on your gut. I, I am doing actually like a parasite um, cleanse right now for liver flukes. So... Yeah, ultimately, I think the deeper things 
like are where it's at, but we all have our different thing, whatever, you know, getting to that, you know, because mm -hmm. I'm mostly better, but this one thing has been lingering for me. So yeah, I'm trying to get to some deeper um, causes and treatments. Mm -hmm. Well, um, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today, Bridget. Um, and I, I know that uh, just before we wrap up here, I know that you have some um, offerings for folks. So um, just if folks are wanting to sort of tap into your brain more or um, work with you or work with an associate of yours by proxy, could you just speak a bit to uh, what kind of offerings you have? And I'll, I'll put um, whatever you're saying here in the show notes for folks. Yeah, thank you. Well, our main site is just my name, BridgetDanner.com. Um, we have a bunch of free eBooks. I'm on mold and some on the brain excuse me uh and we do if you catching this kind of live time we have this free mold summit um coming up it starts february 27th so we have i don't know 35 or however many um different types of mold experts from the home to the body um so if that's a topic of interest um and Brian can share that. I do have a mold book on Amazon, including Canada. Uh, <laughs> one of the easier ways to get to me from Canada. We do see clients virtually from uh, all over. Just sometimes we can't run all the labs. Um, but a lot of our clients will have, like do lab reviews with us that they've had run before just to get like a set, another opinion. We'll help you with protocols. So um, yeah, we have a ton of resources. We're just... <laughs> you know, <laughs> cranking them out all the time. So happy for you to just come and like take a look and uh, get involved. That's great. And uh, just if folks did want to access virtual care, um, is that through your website as well? Or how is that done? Yeah, you can click over the shop. Our shop is actually called Functional Detox Products, which is our brand of supplements. Um, but the labs and like consultations are there as well as for okay. like some of our partner companies, like um, probiotic companies and stuff that we work with. So we're a little different in that we're like more retail than um, practitioner based. So most of our clients have never seen us. They just kind of learn from our resources. And um, again, they probably, you know, they may have someone like you or they, you know, most people takes a village to get better. Mm. So we're just like playing our role in that. Great. Well, yeah, I, I was um, on your website before and yeah, there's a lot of resources and things on there for folks to check out. So again, I'll put uh, the website in the show notes and um, yeah, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Yeah. Thanks, Brian. And uh, thanks so much to everyone listening. Um, so this ends another episode of the Overcoming Chronic Illness podcast. Uh, thanks so much for listening and we'll catch you next time.